0: Just about mid-2011, I was, I was leaving command. I'd just taken over a position, a great job at the Naval Academy, a two-year position there. And I had a lot more free time than I did on my submarine, as you can imagine. And I was searching for uh, a way to, to shift active income into passive. You know, I'd, I'd read Robert Kiyosaki's books over the years. I really just, I mean, they just spoke to me. Uh, rich Dad Poor Dad and and most of the others you know his prophecy it all just made a lot of sense to me so I was looking for you know following his model of of shifting into you know passive cash flow income and I'm a mechanical engineer and the thing that made most sense to me you know not buying the coin laundry machine although I think that that facility may be a great idea too but for me it was about real estate and and buildings and so I was looking into that you happen to have a great podcast and I I started listening in the teens I think it was and I've started to listen to all of them and I just have kind of become a junkie of that. I, you know, So I got my first property in the end of 2011 in St. Louis. I bought a few more there. Um, I'm up to eight, and my wife Susan is today, in fact, we will we'll get her first three, and we'll, she'll be at six by the end of this month. And hopefully, if, if all goes well, we'll have Susan topped out, and then we'll go back and start focusing on Gary again.
1: Welcome, 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 and thank you so much for joining me. This is your host, Jason Hartman, with episode number 1188, 1188. So we've got a uh, follow-up to the multiple show case study we've done on uh, self-management with Drew Baker. This episode actually will be in two parts, today and tomorrow, and then uh, we will have our 10th episode show on Thursday, which is a real zinger for you. <laughs> so you'll see, you'll see, 10th episode coming up in a couple of days here. I've got Drew back on the show. We have a variety of important topics to uh, discuss today, not the least of which is self management. And uh, we're going to give you a continuing perspective on that. We want you to become an empowered investor. That is our big goal here is to empower investors to take control of their financial future. Of course, the first way you can do that is by getting away from the pooled money investments, the Wall Street scams, and all the rest. And the next layer once you're a direct investor in income property, is to self-manage or at least manage your managers with authority. Yes, have authority. And uh, that's what we help you do here on the show. So, Drew, welcome back. How are you doing? Great.
2: Great, Jason. Glad to have you back in the United States.
1: Yes, I am. I am back from China. And uh, wow, what an amazing trip that was. I was uh, I was really quite surprised at the level of prosperity you know especially shanghai but even guangzhou beijing china was actually quite a bit nicer than i expected you know it was the 83rd country for me i'd never been to mainland china only hong kong before and i have been all over around southeast asia kuala lumpur singapore uh, bali etc but yeah i was pretty impressed now of course the Kyle Bass video. How how was
2: the pollution there? I know that was a big issue in China for quite some time. Well,
1: you know, I think the pollution is still a continuing problem, but it was not a problem for us. We didn't get any days that were, that it felt bad. In fact, in Shanghai, it was actually quite nice. I, I didn't think it was polluted at all. In Beijing, a little bit, but Not bad. Maybe we just got kind of lucky about it. But let me tell you the type of pollution that you don't get in China. This is good. You ready for this one?
2: You know, I'm. going to start with leaf blowers. (laughs) Yes, you.
1: You nailed it, Drew. You nailed it. You don't get noise pollution. See, here in the U.S., here in the U.S., we get all sorts of noise invasions. Right. We get disgusting leaf blowers, the worst invention in human history, possibly. But we also get a lot of these cars and motorcycles that modify their exhaust systems. I think that should be completely illegal. What right do they have to disturb everybody else? You don't hear any of that. It's just very nice. You know, people use brooms in China rather than leaf blowers. What a pleasant surprise. And then you don't have the modified cars and the modified uh, motorcycles. Everything's just really quite quiet and nice. I have a question
2: for you because, like, I think, for example, Tesla's building a factory in Shanghai, and, uh, you know, anything to get done in the United States, you know, factory-wise takes a couple of years if you're going to build out something like that. And they were talking about the timeline in China, and they said that since there's no ordinances, and there may be in the city center, but like, they can build 24 hours. Yeah. And so I don't know if I would buy that noise pollution thing in certain parts, because when it comes to industry, they never sleep.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm not addressing construction. Now, we were not affected by any construction noise on the trip. I did see a lot of construction, but I did not hear construction. So I don't know, you know, that may be a problem uh, for some, but it's definitely You definitely don't have the leaf blower problem. You don't even have the gardening equipment problem. We stayed at two different Shangri-La hotels on the trip, and I I love Shangri-La hotels. They're just gorgeous. The one we stayed at in, which one was that? Was that, I think it was the Hong Kong Shangri-La. You know, I went out by the pool one morning, and it was so pleasant that there was a gardener out there, and he was clipping the hedges with, you know, manual non-motorized clippers it was just so quiet and pleasant and peaceful i really enjoyed it
2: <laughs> yeah i think uh my first world complaint which yours can be leaf blowers was going to be restaurants playing music way too long. oh it yeah so un-
1: totally so totally. unnecessary
2: yeah. i yeah. mean does it, anyone like that please no,
1: explain that because I don't get it. You know, the restaurants want to make people feel unsettled so they don't stay long yeah. so they can turn yeah. tables over fast because it's just all about money. I introduced the idea on this show years ago, the concept of what I call air conditioning abuse, where you <laughs> you walk into these places and they're just way too cold. I know first world problem, I get it. The same is true with what I call audio abuse. We need to start being a lot more conscious of all of these forms of abuse that we've got going on. And I know some of you listening think, oh, shut up, you guys. This is total first world ridiculousness. No, it's really not. It matters. But hey, let's get an update on your self-management. You took over management of a whole bunch of your properties, Drew. You spoke at our Meet the Masters event about self-management. You showed a ton of pictures and you had one of our audience uh, members a little angry. He's in the property management business, and he d- he didn't like self-management. And he's probably listening now. Hi, Adele. Um, give us an update uh, a little bit on what's going on with your properties.
2: It is funny because I the, the crescendo in that uh, Meet the Masters event, when I spoke, the slide that we ended up getting the interruption from was my slide talking about all the downsides of self-management. So Maybe at another time I can bring that up and we can talk about that. But yeah, yeah, things are going well with self management. You know, I took the better part of six months to kind of straighten out what I had. Most of the properties I've owned for about 10 years now buying the first one, I guess, in like mid 2010. So maybe nine years, actually.
1: I remember when you bought that property and you agonized about it. And aren't you glad you did looking back?
2: (laughs) It was a good investment at the time, because the way I looked at it was if I could buy the property below the cost of construction, and there's a strong rental market in the area, it seemed like there wasn't a lot of downside. Now, granted, in 2010, if you had had any money and you threw it at the dartboard, you probably would be okay.
1: If you would have purchased gold or silver in 2010, you wouldn't have done that well. (laughs) So certainly the stock market's gone up and the real estate market's pretty much gone up. And that first property you bought was in uh, Indianapolis.
2: Yeah, that is true. Yeah, if you'd bought gold. But, you know, the thing is, is you don't want to buy gold when everyone's there's a liquidity issue. A bunch of people are afraid. There's the fear levels at an all time high. Then everyone just floods into that, so you would have made more money if you'd bought it back when everybody wasn't scared to death. but yeah, you're right, though I guess if you had bought gold, it would have you know but the problem with gold is gold's not really an investment yeah. because it doesn't it doesn't produce any income. It just sits there and looks pretty, and sure, it's a great off-grid asset. So the way I look at gold is if the government comes in and tries to take everything away. That's kind of like your off-grid money. It's the end of the world strategy.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, precious metals, as I've discussed ad nauseum uh, over the past years, are, are highly overrated. You want things that produce income. If it doesn't produce income, it's a speculation, not an investment, but you know, you can have a little bit of it to stash away. You know, I, I get the idea. Okay. So self-management, um, how things going, anything new, any new information, you know, one of the nice things you've, you've been doing is you've been improving your properties and, you know, putting new faucets in new light fixtures with all the money you're saving by not paying a property manager. And you know, just doing it yourself, which is really quite easy. (laughs) You know, you've been improving your properties nicely. So I think you're going to see your tenant turnover go way down. And you're going to be able to keep your tenants better and, and all kinds of good stuff. So yeah, tell us.
2: The thing that's nice is all of my properties were all either going month to month, or they were just about to come out of lease. So I was able to get everyone to resign. And kind of just as sort of a proof of concept for them, I said, Hey, I'm going to spend some time and kind of address some of the things you want, some of the things you need and fix up the place. I mean, they all decided to resign. So I think they like what I'm doing, but you know, it does come, I'll tell you kind of my strategy of buying the places. And when I did, I sort of bought them in clusters. So I decided to sort of, buy three or four in one neighborhood or adjacent neighborhood. So they were somewhat close to each other. And I think the issue with that, so there's a couple things. There's one thing is great is like tomorrow I'm going to have a roofer replaced on one of my properties. And I told the roofer, I want you to look at two other properties while you're over there to get me an estimate, see how the roofs are doing. But with that, since all the homes were built between 1999 and 2003, they're all about 20 years old. So having bought them in clusters, you're seeing all the roofs kind of go out at once, all the mechanicals like the HVAC all sort of start to give issues at once. So that is sort of a something I didn't foresee in terms of like budgeting for that, because every 20 years, you're going to have some expense in that way that will cut into your performance. But the nice thing is, is I don't expect to sell them for another 15 years or 20 years. So it's going to level out. But at the same time, you have to expense it this year and then take the depreciation over 27 and a half years. So that's what's going on.
1: Have you um, considered doing any cost segregation studies on your properties to take that depreciation faster on certain components of your properties in get a better tax deduction. I know since Meet the Masters, a lot of people have been asking about that after Tom Wheelwright spoke on it. I've been looking into it a little more, and I did. I want to remind everybody listening. A long time ago, I did a show on this where we had a guest on that did inexpensive cost segregation studies that actually were economically feasible for single-family homes, where I think he was charging $995 dollars And that makes it work. Usually a cost seg or cost segregation, it was cost prohibitive for the single family home. On a large commercial property, it made sense to do it. And I'll tell you, I did it on an apartment complex I owned. It was, I think we spent, my partner and I spent like $28,000 to do the cost seg study. So that was a lot of money, right? But we got it back way more than we spent. It was a good deal for us to do that. But, you know, again, we ended up selling that apartment building for, I think, $8.2 million. Maybe it was eight million. Don't quote me on the price, but like about $8 bucks, give or take, okay? It was worth it to do that cost seg study. But usually on a single-family home, you know, it's, it's not really economical. But I did interview a guest that does those. So go to jasonartman.com, type in cost segregation in the search bar, and you can find that episode uh, where the gentleman was on the show offering that for single family homes for a very reasonable price. Go ahead, Drew.
2: Well, when you did the cost seg and then you did a ten thirty one exchange in, in other places, and I know you didn't fully cover it all, but by doing that cost seg, I guess it probably did make a lot of sense because you ended up selling the property. I mean, I guess it would make sense either way, but you know, you were able to capture depreciation that you wouldn't have been able to capture had you. You know, sold the property. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. Well, just remember this. Ultimately, you'll capture all the depreciation if enough time goes by, right? I mean, in 27 and a half years, all depreciation will have taken place. But accelerating it because of the time value of money, it's always better to have. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, as Wimpy says on on Popeye, right? So that's the point of cost seg.
2: My question is, since you, like, let's say you were going to sell a property, like a large multifamily unit Mm -hmm. in a few years from now, doing the cost seg would allow you to capture some of the depreciation that you wouldn't get to see because you ended up selling the property. Yeah, you,
1: you may not get it all by the time you sell it. But remember, when you 1031 exchange, everything just rolls into the next thing. Right. And right. and there's a there's another thing, though. This just came to my mind as you were bringing that up. You could probably offer that cost seg study that you paid for to the next buyer, and it would help them. Because oh, that's funny. they could use it, too. And, you know, they they may have to tweak and revise it, I'm sure. But at least they'll have a base where you did the heavy lifting for them and that'll make it more valuable to the new buyer. But hey, let's not get too stuck on that, okay? Let's not get too deep in the lease. No, you're
2: double dipping the chip on that one. That's hilarious. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Hey,
1: you know, we're into capitalism over here, folks, okay? So keep listening. (laughs) We'll help you.
2: So yeah, no, I didn't do any cost segregations on any of my properties. You know, a lot of these places were purchased with cash so that, you know, and they were under $100,000. So I think the cost savings wouldn't be that, great. And since a lot of the repair maintenance that I'm doing, like a roof, it is what it is. I don't know that it would accelerate it dramatically. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, if it's a thousand dollars, it's just one of those things I haven't gone through the trouble to. And I don't know how much it would help me, but I'm open to it. I think it does make sense in certain circumstances. Yeah.
1: Now, so you all of your tenants renewed in all the properties since you've been self-managing. And you were telling me just a minor thing, but you're using Hello Sign to do the leases. Uh, you know, so you've got like a DocuSign type platform now to make it more convenient for you and your tenants, no papers to deal with, right?
2: Yeah. So originally I was having my leasing agent send renewal contracts as she graciously offered to do. But I felt like since I've kind of spread out the lease renewals so they don't all collide at the same time, having to ask her every month to do that, I just thought was kind of something sticky and I didn't want to bother her, you know, because you have to upload the PDF and get places for them to date and sign and put in every email address. It takes like 15 minutes. It's Mm -hmm. not a huge ordeal, but it's to ask that favor every month. It's kind of a hassle because I have about 10 units that I'm now self-managing. So the beauty about HelloSign is they have a free version that you can get three documents signed a month. Which, for most of your average listeners,
1: that'll, that'll easily do the job. cover yeah, yeah. will
2: easily cover their spread. And I don't really like to have properties renew all in the same month mm-hmm. because if two go vacant, yeah. a lot of times the repair people I use, you know, it may just end up where I have extra vacancy because I can't anticipate. So that's how I've approached it. And also, you know, the thing that's important to understand is when you have a place like the place that I'm referring to is Indianapolis, where you have these unpredictable weather patterns, bad months where the weather's horrible and the only people moving are the ones that have to move that you don't want as tenants, per se. Mm -hmm. You know, going through a divorce, separating, getting kicked out at Christmas because they can't make ends meet. I've just found that I have a higher likelihood of success when there's more competition in the warmer months. So that period or that window of time is about four or five months. So I find that I try to get most of my tenants to sign two year leases. And I'd say most, more than half have gone for that. So when you take a two year lease and then, you know, maybe the other half do a one year lease and you have that four or five months wiggle room, I found that I, it's very rare that I'll have two that will renew in the same month because of the, the way I kind of have it spread out.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I think that's good to split it up and then always try to get your lease renewals in the prime time of year for your marketplace, I used to use a clause in my leases that said, you know, even if the lease is month to month at that point, like if you you have a one year or two year lease and then the tenant just stays, and for whatever reason you didn't have them re-sign a new lease, it would still say that they cannot vacate in December, for example, you know, because I just I know I'm going to have a vacancy. If they vacate in December, it's just not a good month to lease, right? Very good. Good point. Good point.
2: That's interesting that you can write that in. The thing that I like about having you know all these clients because they are customers, you know, since they rent from me, since good, I have good way to look at on, it. Good way to look at it. The tenant is your customer. <laughs> since I have them all on lease, the thing that I did that was kind of fun was I added up all the time that I have in rental commitments. And I know this is one in the hands better than two, you know, two in the bush, but as far as binding contractual agreements of time, you know, I looked at all these rental units and I added up how much, how many days I've had in commitments. And it's something like 12 years between all my rentals. And I was just doing the math and I'm like, I have a hundred and, you know, $50,000 worth of commitments. And You know, the thing that's nice is that's an annuity.
1: Meaning, and what you mean by that is if you add up all the months of rental income that they have contracted for, it's $150,000. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay, got it.
2: Also, you know, duration of time, you know, half are doing two years, the other half might do a year, all that time between, you know, nine or 10 rentals is about 12 to Thirteen years, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of these people will stay even longer. I oh, mean, sure, they I was will. looking yeah. at it, and a,
1: and a couple, you know, one or two are probably going to default too and break their lease, and you know, that's just part of the business,
2: All right? I've certainly had that, so that does happen. But the thing that's nice is. You know, I'm looking at some of these clients, and they've been there for five or six years. Mm-hmm. And now that I've taken over self-management, I mean, I have much more of a pulse on kind of what they're doing. You're going to keep them longer.
1: Yeah. You, and you know what's going yeah. on. Yeah. I love it. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, and so, you know, and the other thing, too, is I had kind of an interesting situation with one of my tenants where their lease was about to expire in about a month. And so about 45 days before I said, Hey, I would like to find out whether you want to do a one or two year lease and you can lock in this existing rate for one or two years. It's up to you. And they opted for one year. And when I sent them the lease renewal, they said, Hey, Hey, I don't want to sign yet. My lease isn't up till the first. And I very delicately told them that in the same way that you have to give a 30 days notice, if you're leaving, I need to give you a 30 days notice for the renewal.
1: In other words, you need to give them 30 days notice to vacate or to say they need to renew? What, Which exactly do you mean?
2: Yeah. So just in the same way that they need to give me notice if they're leaving. Right. I'm giving them notice of what the new lease is and they need to sign it 30 days before the lease expires.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That was my strategy because, hey, I, I'm not going to have them sign the new lease on the first when their lease starts. Like mm-hmm. that doesn't give us any time. They still need to give 30 days notice, but that would kick them off of the lease renewal date. So oh, that's it. the way I approached it.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, good. Good stuff. Okay. This will be continued on the next episode. Thank you for listening and happy investing.